All right. Good morning, church. How are you today? Good to have you. Glad you're so talky talk. All right. Hey, church. Welcome to Cedar Mill this morning. I'm Pastor Dave. If you're new with us, we're glad you're here. We are launching into a new series uh, this morning for, that we're going to be in for the next, uh, this morning and plus seven more weeks in the Gospel of Luke where we're looking at Luke's kind of version of the, the Sermon on the Mount and we're calling it Upside Down Kingdom, this, this message where Jesus tries to turn our lives um, literally upside down so that we will live for Him. And I want to begin this morning um, in this way. Imagine if you were in a gymnasium with a group of high school boys who were all bouncing orange balls, wearing tank tops, baggy shorts, and Nike high-top sneakers. And then, as you stood and observed, an older gentleman came in, blew a whistle, and said, Line up. I'm choosing five of you to be down at this end of the court with me, and five of you go down to the other end of the court with Coach Jeff. Now, in that moment, would anyone have maybe... Just a slight idea of what was about to happen, of what was going on. Any guesses? Yeah, okay, yeah, you can feel confident about it. It's not a trick question. I know that I like to trick you, but... No, yeah, they, they're, they're about to play a basketball game. And we would all know that in our world, in our society, because uh, we know that when you pick a team of five in a gym and people are wearing high tops and bouncing orange balls, basketball is about to be, a, be played. Well, friends... In Jesus' day, they didn't have basketball. But, like N.T. Wright says, what they did have was this. A vivid memory of the time when God called 12 tribes of Israel, descending from 12 sons of Jacob, and made this group his special people so that through them, he could fulfill his purposes for the whole world. That's, that's what God is up to in our passage today. If you'd open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 6. I'm going to back us up just a few verses and we're going to do a little bit of a recap. We're going to start in verse 12. We're going to primarily focus today on verses 17 through 19. But with, with that sort of team selection in mind, listen to what Luke says here. Luke's talking about Jesus and he says, One of those days Jesus went up to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. So he goes to spend some time with his father and get his mind clear and get direction from, from, from his dad. And then it says this, When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them. And then we get the list whom he called apostles. And he says, Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So, so in this moment, what Luke is telling us, and what everyone knows, is that Jesus is picking his team, a team of 12. And no, it's not a women's lacrosse team, which, by the way, is played 12 on 12. You didn't know that, did you? Um... Now, Jesus is picking here an Israel team. And this is the team that will actually be the nucleus, the center, the starting point of a people Jesus will use to teach and train about what it means to be God's people in this world the way God has always intended for us to be. He grabs this group of 12 and he says, this is the new Israel team. I'm going to now show you what it really is supposed to look like 
to be God's people, to live for Him in this world. You see, Luke writes this gospel, and he writes to a, a group of folks who live in a really different world than us. It was a, it was a long time ago in, in a place far, far away that Luke writes to. But friends, do not miss this. Do not be fooled into thinking that they are so much different than you and me. Because here's the truth. On a deep soul level, those people back then had the exact same questions about living for God that you and I have today. Daryl Bach, who's actually one of the leading scholars on the Gospel of Luke, he, he says this, he makes this observation. The more we closely examine first century people, the more we see that they are just like us. Their problems and attitudes concerning sin, money, anxiety, hope, community, rejection, vengeance, pride, humility, and God's direction mirror the very same questions that we face. Ever ask these kinds of questions? What does it look like to be a Christian in our world? What should the church really be about? What should we value? What should we care about? What should we, should we focus our energy and efforts on? How should we live our lives in this world as a people who claim to be followers of Jesus? Ever wonder this? When it comes to our society, this culture that we live in, how should we relate to it, interact with it, live in it as a people who have declared allegiance to God? Ever watch people try to figure out what it looks like to live for God in the midst of a society and a world that doesn't always live for Him? You see, in in first century Israel, in Jesus' day, people asked these very same questions, and they had a variety of answers for these questions. What does it look like to be God's people in this world? And there was a great debate amongst them. There are a lot of different sort of answers, but there are actually four main camps, four main and major philosophies, four different groups that sought to answer this question of what it should look like to be God's people in this world in Jesus' day. And I'm going to kind of walk you through. I'm going to give you a little bit of a history here. And um, I just want to encourage you, just, just buckle down and focus in right now. Because if you understand these four main groups and their answer to this question, how should we live out being God's people in the world, you will understand just so many of the interactions that Jesus has all throughout this gospel that Luke, that Luke writes for us. So, first, four groups. Four groups answering this question. Here's the first one. They're a group that you'll be familiar with because Jesus interacted with them so often. The first group were called the Pharisees. Uh, they're familiar to us, again, because they are constantly following Jesus around and nitpicking at his ministry. The Pharisees believed this. The Pharisees believed that the very center of being God's people in this world was this calling to vehemently obey the law of God. You see, from the Pharisees' perspective, society, Israel, had begun to water down the law, and so they, what they wanted to do is they wanted to tighten things up. They believed that if God's people would just be more faithful to His law, then oppression would end, and God would bring His kingdom, and He would kick all the pagan Romans out of their country. Right? He would sort of clean things up. If they would just learn to obey a little better. Then there were the Essenes, 
They were kind of the extreme version of the Pharisees. And they believed this. They believed everything in society had actually become so corrupt, had gone so far downhill, that the only way to respond to society was to withdraw from society. They, they believed in living a life of complete separation from the world so that they could live purely the way God wanted them to live. This is an extremely exclusive group. Anyone in here ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Yeah, you heard people talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were actually the result of one of these communities, one of these Essene communities. They found them in the Qumran community, um, sort of in the ruins of this group that had moved out of society and created this little kind of group where they lived together in purity out in the desert all by themselves. So we have the Pharisees, their answer for what it looks like to be the people of God. We have the Essenes and their answer for what it looks like to live for God in this world. And then there were the Sadducees, group number three. The Sadducees took a completely different approach than the Pharisees and the Essenes. The Sadducees believed this. They believed you could live out your calling to be the people of God right in the midst of society. They had what you might call... And if you can't beat them, join them, a sort of philosophy. And so what you would see from people with sort of a Sadducean mindset is that they wouldn't separate themselves from pagan groups, from the Romans. They would actually seek to dive in and collaborate with them. And because the Sadducees were the folks who were willing to work with the Romans, work with folks in society, they were the ones who got all of the collaborative sort of jobs. The Sadducees held positions like temple official Right? You, had to, you had to work with the Romans to get that job. Um, the high priest was a Sadducee. Tax collectors. Tax collectors, by the way, were just Jewish people collaborating with the Romans to collect taxes for them from their own people. These are folks who, will, who are willing to sort of collaborate and jump right in and be a part of the whole picture. By the way, any, um, any Sadducee types in Jesus' disciple group? Any, any tax collectors amongst the 12 disciples that we know of? Yeah, we know of at least one, right? Matthew was a tax collector. Later on in Luke, we're actually going to be told that Jesus goes and shares a meal with a famous tiny little tax collector named Zacchaeus, right? He's a wee little guy. Wee little man was he? Sycamore tree? Want to see the Lord? All that stuff? Okay. Right, so so there's, there's sort of this... this approach to what it means to be the people of God in this world happening, and Jesus is challenging that. So with the Pharisees, the Essenes, the Sadducees, and then last but not least, and then our history lesson is over, then there are the Zealots. Now the Zealots had a completely different approach than the Sadducees. They're like polar opposites. If the Sadducees' word was collaborate, then the Zealots would actually say assassinate. You see, the Zealots wanted revolution. The Zealots believed that to live out their calling as the people of God, they should rise up and fight anyone who oppressed them, anyone who stood against God and living for Him in this world. They wanted to actually take up the sword and oppose Rome and reform society by using power and force. Anyone ever recall a moment where one of Jesus' disciples took up the sword and actually went after a Roman soldier, maybe even cutting off his ear? sort of a, a, a zealot-type mindset, way of approaching, living out, being one of God's people in the world. Um, again, just, just to kind of help us to think about this a little bit, any zealots in Jesus' disciple group? 
Yeah, right there in the list. Luke tells us real explicitly in verse 15, Simon, who was called the zealot. This is a guy who was so bought into this way of thinking and living out his commitment to God that they referred to him as Simon the Zealot. Many scholars actually believe that Judas Iscariot was also a zealot. And this is what leads to his betrayal of Jesus. Think about this for a minute now. So now on Jesus' team, you've got a tax collector, a Sadducee, a guy who collaborates with Rome to sort of tax his own people. And then on the other hand, you have some folks who want to kill Rome. Think that made for any interesting conversations amongst the disciples during like break time when Jesus, you know, gave them some free space? Imagine like when they're on a road trip and Jesus calls out the room assignments for the night. All right, you know, Bartholomew, you're going to room with Judas. Hey, Simon! Why don't you and Matthew room together tonight? And the disciples are all going, that's not going to go well, Jesus. Make sure they're not armed, right? All right, here's the point, friends. You have all these different ideas, all these different agendas, beliefs, philosophies on what it looks like to live out our calling as God's people. And here's the point. Jesus gathers this team, this group of 12, and he is now making his point, this very profound statement. Now I... I'm going to show you what it really means to be the people of God in this world. You have your own thoughts, you have your own agendas, you have your own ideas, but now learn what it's really supposed to look like for me. And friends, Jesus' plan and ideas and vision and agenda, it is going to challenge every single other agenda out there. You see, none of these guys have got it right. And Jesus will actually spend the next few years teaching and training them to lay down their agendas, their ideas, so that they can begin to embrace Jesus' agenda, his vision, his idea of what it looks like to be the people of God in this world. Anyone here ever watched the movie Hoosiers? Any Hoosiers fans out there? Hoosiers is like, one of the top five movies on my top five movie list. It, it's always up there. I must have watched that movie like 87 times in high school, and that is not an exaggeration. But it, it, it's a great show. It, it's the story of an old coach played by Gene Hackman who moves to this small Indiana farm town and begins to coach the high school basketball team there. And at first, it does not go well. Like his coaching efforts are not working because the team wants to play, they have a philosophy of playing the game one way, and and Hackman has a philosophy of coaching the team in a completely different way. And at one point in the movie, things are not going well for him. It looks like the season's going down the drain. And this character asks him, Coach, what are you going to do? What's your plan for this team? And and, and Hackman thinks for a minute and has this little like black notepad and he kind of smacks his hand and he says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to break them down and then I'm going to build them back up. I'm going to break them down and then I'm going to build them back up. And what he's saying is this. I'm not just going to take what they think and do and adjust it a little bit. I'm not going to just take what they already have and how they already think and operate and make it a little bit better. No, he's saying, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to rid them of their ideas and agendas in order that I might teach them what it means to play this game the right way, my way, so they can truly be and become the team they were created to be. Friends, that's the kind of coach Gene Hackman was and that's the kind of Messiah that Jesus is. Hear this, friends, because this is when this gets real personal. 
Jesus has not come to just make minor moral adjustments in your life. That's not his goal. That's not his plan. That's not his desire. Just that he might come, fit into your life and your agenda and make you a little bit better. He has not come to just tweak and improve your way of living, your ideas, your agenda of what it means to live as a child of God in this world. You see, he's going to break you down and then he's going to build you back up. And so as we dive into this series, as we get into these teachings of Jesus, I have to ask you this question, friends. Do you really want the Jesus way of living or do you just want him to help you with your way of living? Are you ready to embrace Jesus calling his agenda, his idea for you of what it looks like to be a Christ follower, a person of God in this world? Or do you want to hold on to your agenda and you just really want him to come in and make your agenda a little better, a little easier, a little holier, maybe a little bit more stomachable? Friends, if you are ready to lay down your agendas, to let Jesus rip them from your hands even then these next seven weeks are for you. The sermon that he'll preach is for you. And it starts like this. He, Jesus, verse 17, went down with them, the disciples, and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon who had come near, come to hear him and to be healed for, of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Now, in the time we have left, I want to talk about how even in these brief introductory verses, we get a glimpse, we just get a little taste of some things Jesus is going to take farther later, but we just get a taste of these three things. Who, Luke says... Jesus' kingdom is for? Who gets to be on this people of God team? What Luke says the kingdom is about? Like, what's the purpose? What's the aim? What's the mission of this people of God team? And how Luke says this kingdom of God team is accessed? How Luke says it's embraced or received by you and me and others? So first of all, who is this new kingdom of God, people of God team that Jesus is assembling for? Who gets invited to to be on the roster? He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon. You see, Luke gives us this list of all the folks who have come to be near Jesus and to hear him and to embrace his teaching his way of doing life, following God in this world. And there are four different groups. The first three are sort of expected parties. And then the fourth one is, is kind of a, you know, what you said? What you said, Jesus, moment. Okay, um, to keep with my sports theme that I've got going here today, which I know is really heavy. So if you're not a sportsy person, we'll do some other analogies later. Uh, this would sort of be like one of those moments where you're attending the Seattle Seahawks training camp. And you're talking about all the people that showed up for this event. Like the, the Seahawks are getting ready for the season. They have this open house. You can go for training camp. You can watch. You can observe. You can be with all the other Seahawks fans and go crazy and um, yell and shout and break the sound record and all that stuff. And it would be kind of like saying, like, who was there? And you're like, yeah, I'll tell you who was there. A large group from Seattle was there. 
A good-sized crowd from all over Washington was there. Some folks even drove up from Portland. And then there were those San Francisco 49er fans with their faces painted there. And you'd be like, what? Why were, the 40, why were 49er fans at the Seahawks training camp? They don't belong there. They're our enemies. They're our rivals. Kick them out. Someone get security, right? This is what Luke's readers would have been thinking as soon as he mentioned these people from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are just two cities. They're cities to the north and to the east of Israel. They're located right along the Mediterranean coast. They're Phoenician cities. And not only were the people of these cities historically cruel and oppressive to the Jews, not only were they a people that were steeped in pagan Baal worship, but Tyre and Sidon were seaport cities. Now, now, some things just never, again, never change in our world. Imagine with me, if you would, what happens, what typically happens in a city when a, a ship full of sailors that has been off at sea for many, many weeks or months comes to port. What sort of sorts of behaviors they totally do, Greg, and they're coming to your house, right? Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. There's one in every crowd, you know. I, I, <laughs> yeah, that's not what sailors do. They don't come home and looking forward to Bible study typically. That's not the, I mean, maybe some do, but not these guys. These Phoenician sailors, they came home ready to party. And you can just let your imaginations run wild, but that is what these cities and what these people were known for. A, a modern day equivalent might be like a, a reference to Amsterdam or to Las Vegas. Now, not every single person from those cities is, is an evil, ungodly person. No, but there's a reputation associated. And this is what Luke's audience would have been thinking. You know, yeah, Judea, of course. Jerusalem, yeah, around the area, perfect. Tyre and Sidon, really? Who invited those guys? So now, right away we can see that Luke is making a point. He's making a point about who gets invited onto this team. And it's a point that Jesus, uh, that he's actually been making um, throughout his story of Jesus already. He started making this point when he told us that Jesus was born to a peasant girl in Nazareth and visited by lowly shepherds. It's a point he was making in chapter 4 when Jesus stood up in his hometown and said, guess what, even the prophet Elijah was sent to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. This, this way of being the people of God... This call that we have to live as His people in this world. It's not just for us. There's no more insider baseball happening here, friends. There are no pre-selected outsiders. You see, so often in our world, we have this ingrained, and I think really God-given desire deep in our souls to be on the in, to be a part of something. You know that feeling you get when you're a part of a group and you know you're on the inside of the group, you know you're part of it, you know you're really like dialed in with a a group of people and like, yeah, I belong here, I fit here, I'm a part of this, I'm accepted. That is a great feeling. Remember what that felt like in middle school? Right? But largely in our world, the way we define being in, the reason we feel like we're in is because we know that other people are, yeah, not in. 
Right? And so subconsciously, in our world, the way you help yourself feel in is you define who's in and who's out. Because if I know there are people who are out, then I can feel better and better about not being one of those people because I'm one of the people that are in. That is not how it works in the kingdom of God. You're in with God. According to Jesus, according to Luke, should never be defined. Should never be determined by the fact that there are people who are out. In fact, Luke is telling us that this is one of the most radically inclusive communities ever to exist. Maybe, maybe the most outside of the Trinity. This, there's no pre-selected outsiders here. This team is available for everyone. So for us, church, I think the, the, the initial question we have to ask is who are our outsiders? Who are the people we are, tended, we are tempted to think are not in with us as the people of God? Who would, wouldn't even be considered? Who are the Tyre, Tyre and Sidonites for us? See, these are people that Jesus is going to say, no, 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 no. They should be in. No, 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 no. Go invite them in. Flip your agenda over and remember who the kingdom of God is really available to. So we kind of clear up the question of who. Who is this people of God team available to? And then the next question is what Luke says Jesus people, this Jesus people of God team is about. What's the mission of this team? What does it look like to play on this team? What is the goal? It says a large crowd of his disciples was there, Judea, Jerusalem, all over the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon. And then verse 18 who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, those troubled by impure spirits were cured. You notice there's like three layers to what's happening here. As these people come to encounter Jesus and meet Jesus and experience God through Jesus, they experience him on three levels. They hear some things from him, they're healed by him. And then there's, there's some spiritual restoration happening as well. And just so you know, Jesus is kind of the prototype. If you want to know what it looks like to fully live out a calling as one of God's people in this world, you look at Jesus. He's like the target on the wall. You know when you get directions and you use Siri and you, you guys use the, the app and they drop the little stick pin in? And it's like your blue dot, that's who you are. And then there's the red stick pin over here. And then you get some options for the way you can go and you choose one. You know where you're headed. You know where you're going to, but you're not there yet. Jesus is the red stick pin. He's the goal. He's the goal for who every single one of us want to be. He says, this is what it will ultimately look like to live out fully and completely... This calling to be God's chosen people in this world. We look at Jesus. He, he tells us where we're headed. And Jesus says, here's where you're headed. You're headed to a th- towards a three-dimensional ministry. A ministry where people's understanding is transformed. There's, there's, there's mental transformation. There's cognitive restoration. People are going to learn to think about the world in a different way. This is why Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind because transformation happens in our brains but then there's there's also a, a physical transformation people are healed of their diseases and sometimes in our world we get really kind of fixated on this whole deal 
This whole like spectacular healing ministry. Man, Jesus did some healing, so we should really try to do healing. We have to understand, friends, that Jesus is, he's like the ultimate example of what it looks like to live out the ministry of the kingdom. And I'm not saying that healing can't happen and that we can't heal, but sometimes we get so fixated on the spectacular ministry of the physical that we forget about and neglect the practical ministry of the physical. You see, Jesus cares a lot about the gospel advancing through the meeting of physical needs in this world. That's why he says stuff like this. Truly I tell you, that means, listen up, this is real important. Whatever you do for one of the least of these brothers and sisters, you do for me. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. You see, Jesus is saying here, when we meet physical needs in the name of Jesus, the kingdom advances. That's what it means to live as a person who is a part of the people of God in this world. We're not just about helping people think differently. We're about helping people experience this world and live life differently. That's why why injustice and oppression fall wherever the kingdom lives. Because practical injustices are taken down by our kingdom. It is mental, it is physical, and then lastly, it's spiritual. So as people come and they have these, these spiritual struggles and they're cured of these struggles. You see, friends, we have to understand that our call to live in Christ and to move with Him and to be His people in this world, it's not just about thinking. It's not just about this physical world. It's about this other spiritual realm that surrounds every single one of us. And we have this opportunity to connect people to the living God that, so that spiritually they can be whole again. And that happens as we introduce people to Jesus. But there's a battle. Paul says it this way. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Friends, there is a threefold holistic ministry and it's a calling that Jesus had in this world. It's the way he lived out You know, his call to bring the kingdom here and he passes that calling on to us, that holistic calling. You know, it occurred to me that holistic, this idea of being holistic is really in vogue right now. You hear people talking about it all the time, like, I'm looking for something more holistic, right? People say that constantly about like food and medical stuff. Jesus was holistic before holistic was cool. Right? He was holistic like 2,000 years ago because he wants to bring redemption and transformation to the whole person, to the whole of society, to the whole of this world and all of creation. And friends, that mission that he embraced, that he lived out, he passes on to us. You see, to be the people of God means that we embrace The mission of God. It's one of the central themes that runs throughout the Gospel of Luke. It's one of the coolest things about this Gospel. Is that Luke doesn't say, guess what? Jesus came, he died on the cross for your sins, and now you can go to heaven someday. He says, no, Jesus came and he died on the cross for your sins so that you can be redeemed and restored now and forever. And so that you can take his mission, and then once he goes back to heaven, you can be empowered by his spirit to carry out and live out that mission in this world as his people. That's the message of Luke. 
Christ came to create a people to carry his mission forward. In fact, there's this really great scene in the sequel that Luke writes, which is called Acts, right? In Acts chapter 1, there's this awesome scene. Jesus is still around. He's been crucified. He's been killed. He's been in the grave. He's risen to new life. He's spent time with his disciples again. And then he's talking to them. He's standing with them in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, he ascends into heaven. He is taken up to heaven, the, the scriptures say, before their very eyes. Now, just think about this for a minute. They're standing there with Jesus. Their risen Lord and Savior. They're trying to figure this whole thing out. He's been giving them instructions and commands about what it looks like to be his people in this world. And then all of a sudden, whoop, there he goes. Just, uh, I mean, seriously. Is anyone else going to be freaking out at this moment? Or is it just me? So the Bible tells us this. In Acts chapter 1, they're standing there looking up into the sky like, is he coming down or... Where did he go? I mean, they're just utterly confused. And it says this. Suddenly, two men dressed in white stood beside them. And then listen to this question. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Well, and I mean, I'm thinking like, well, duh. (laughs) Why do you think Jesus just floated away? Right? But but what's implicit in this question, the message Luke is, is giving them in this moment is, Guess what, guys? You can either stand around and stare into the sky and wonder when Jesus is coming back or you can get busy doing the mission that he's given you to do. And ironically, right before he floated away, right before he ascended into heaven, he gave them that mission. In verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. It's a word that means ambassadors, those who represent me and push my mission forward in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Guess what? The mission that I've had, the mission that I've shown you, it's now yours. What does it mean to be the people of God in this world? It means that we take up the three-dimensional mission of Jesus in this world and empowered by his spirit, we live it out and push it forward until he comes back. So who, what, and finally how? How, how does Luke say the kingdom is embraced? Verse 19. The people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Now, there's a lot going on here. I'm sure there's some folks who are just, you know, looking for a free healing. But what I really see in this moment and in this crowd are people who understand a couple of things. First of all, where the power comes from. Second of all, that it doesn't come from them. You see, there's this this moment where they have to to get close enough to Jesus to reach out and touch him. And in that act of reaching out and touching, I just see tremendous vulnerability. I see like a confession. It's like this very physical confession. I need you, Jesus, to heal me and fix me because I cannot heal and fix myself. I guess the question is this, friends. Who do you reach out to for healing and transformation in your life? Where do you go when the stuff inside of you is broken and needs to get fixed? Where do you turn? Do you turn to the Lord? Does He have the authority to mess with and reconfigure and fix the broken junk in your life? Does He? He wants to. 
He wants to, I think Jesus loves people that just reach out to him and say, I need, I need a transformed mind. I need help, Lord. My mind is messed up and I need new understanding. I need, there's some spiritual forces that work in my life, Lord, that only you can fix. There, there's some physical realities that I'm facing in this world, God, and I need you by the power of your spirit to do a work in my life. It's interesting to me that, you know, people wouldn't do that. But we see it all the time, don't we? You ever known someone who, they're sick, they're hurting, they're not getting better, they're clearly going downhill, and yet they won't go to the doctor? You, you know anyone like this? Do you know a man? Right? They're called husbands sometimes. Just too prideful, like, oh, it'll be fine. I, don't, I just don't even want to deal with the fact that as soon as I go to the doctor, it's like confessing there really is something wrong with me. You see, when these people reach out, reach out to Jesus, it's as if they're saying, Lord, there's something so broken in me, I don't even know what it is, let alone being able to fix it. See, that's what it looks like to, to just enter into the kingdom. It's so simple. All you have to do is just reach out to Jesus. Embrace that he's the power source. He's the one that can heal and fix and redeem and restore. That's all it takes to become a part of the people of God in this world. Do you have some reaching out to do today? Do you need to just reach out and say, I've never actually fully embraced God's agenda for my life. I've never said, Lord, be Lord. Lord. Be my God, be my Savior, be my King. I need you. There's stuff in me that I will never be able to fix. Only you can fix it. Only you can make me spiritually right with God. Have you never done that? Have you never confessed to Him as Savior and Lord in your life? In just a few minutes, we're going to have a time of, of communion in here, and there are going to be leaders and elders around the room available to pray. And if you just want to receive Christ, if you've never just accepted Jesus as your Lord, just go to one of those those leaders and say, help me accept the Lord in my life. Help me accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. Or maybe maybe you've done that already, but you need to reach out again for some physical healing or some emotional healing or some spiritual healing or some, some cognitive healing in your world. But will you have the humility and the vulnerability to reach out to Jesus? One of the ways you do that is just by coming right here to the table and taking these, these elements that we've been given, this bread and this cup, as a way of saying, it only happens through you. Only through your death and resurrection, Jesus, can I be ultimately redeemed and restored. But another way you do that, friends, the Bible teaches is that we do that with each other. We confess our sins. We confess our needs to one another. And that's why these leaders will be around the room. So don't be bashful. Don't be prideful. Go to someone and say, here's how you can pray for me. Would you do it? And they will. And they'll pray for you. It'll just be a confidential thing. And guess what? The folks in this passage, they did all that in the midst of a crowd. So even though there's a lot of us in this room, that's okay. It's a really biblical thing to do. It's, it's what it means to gather together in the name of Jesus. We seek healing for our souls together. So I'm going to pray. The tables will be open. Take some time with the Lord. Come, grab the elements, receive them on your own. And if you want to ask for prayer, find someone around the room and go ask them to pray for you.
Would you do that? Would you spend some time with God? Let's just spend a few minutes, before we rush off to the rest of our day, let's just spend a few minutes with God together and then we'll be dismissed here in a minute. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the ministry and the mission and the help and the healing and the restoration that you offer us, God. We want to experience you in such a real powerful way that we can live for you in this world and carry your mission forward. Help us be that kind of church. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We declare your death and resurrection as our ultimate and only source of power. In Christ's name, amen.